Welcome back to the Doctor Who Collectors Podcast, the podcast that explores the wielding world of Doctor Who collecting. Those who collect all kinds of Doctor Who merchandise and sometimes just plain Doctor Who. Brought to you in part by Forbidden Planet and Bags Unlimited Incorporated. I am Larry Van Mersbergen, your host, and I've been collecting Doctor Who for 40 years. Collecting Doctor Who is a passion. It is not really a profession. I've been called a professional collector, but I don't really make any money collecting. It's it's a passion. It's a joy. It's something that makes you happy. Um, if, if you're trying to do this to make money, you know, all power to you. It's difficult because prices fluctuate. And, you know, I fight hard for reasonable prices for collectibles so people can actually obtain some of these things and uh, be happy with them. Um, And that's just something that has gone with me for the past 41 years and going into my 42nd year. You know, as far as watching the program, I've been watching Doctor Who for 47 years. And so it's really quite, and and this long time really makes it that much more enjoyable. It makes it important. It makes it part of every Doctor Who fan's um, passion for the show, basically. I like to use the word passion. It's really quite a passionate thing. And uh, I get reinvigorated every uh, post Chicago TARDIS convention, because that's what it's all about. And I had a lot of people come up to me and tell me how wonderful it is to hear this podcast or how wonderful it is to hear my presentations or uh, my costume or or anything like that. It's really, and we'll have a full wrap up on Chicago TARDIS in a moment. Uh, First, I want to wish a happy 38th birthday to the Who Shop in the UK, celebrating all that time. They opened in 1984, which incidentally, Opened the same year I opened one of the first Doctor Who stores in Chicago that exclusively served Doctor Who fans, and we called it Bundles from Britain. Later in 1984, I gained a valuable partner. His name is Gene Smith. You might know that name. He is the CEO of Alien Entertainment and the showrunner of Chicago TARDIS, so things took off and kept going um, and were mentioned in a wonderful book. We actually get the what I call the mostly harmless treatment, uh, like in the Hitchhiker's Guide. Uh, it's a single mention uh, in a book called Red, White, and Who, the story of Doctor Who in America. Of course, there's a lot of information in that book, not a lot of space in the book, as you know, you'd know. But we live on page 384, and you can buy this book right from our front page at DoctorWhoCollectors.com. It's a direct link to Amazon. No, uh, it's not an affiliate program. We don't get any money from that. We just want you to have one. Everybody should have a copy of that book on their shelf. I have one within arm's reach of my desk here, and I sometimes refer to it quite a bit. We are part of the Direction Point Doctor Who Network, which is growing leaps and bounds. Uh, And you can find some wonderful podcasts at DirectionPoint.org. And if you happen to be a listener and a Doctor Who podcaster, there is no question that you should join the network because there's no cost, no catches. All that is needed is a 30-second trailer for your partner podcast. So a little bit of work on your part, but that will open the door to more people listening to your podcast. 
So you can join the ranks of great podcasters like this podcast, Time Streams, Police Box in a Junkyard, The Doctor Who Target Book Club, uh, Traveling the Vortex, The Old Doctor Who Show, Time Ram, and Doctor Who Literature. So hopefully I didn't leave anybody out. Speaking of links, of course, every episode I want to include these two links because every collector needs to have these on the top bar of your browser. Uh, and that is, first of all, the TARDIS Library at Timelash.com. The TARDIS Library is a free place where you can sign up for a free account. No catches there. Um, and you can keep track of your media collection with Doctor Who. It's a great place to create a list of things you want, too, including books, VHS tapes, beta tapes, laser discs, uh, big finish recordings, uh, any kind of media. Is, is located there. So uh, unfortunately, not to keep track of your figurines or action figures or things like that. So that's not the place for that. But this is a really good place to start. Now, of course, if you need to do some research on some serious Doctor Who items or even not so serious Doctor Who items, there's a lot of great things out there. You need the complete index of Howe's Transcendental Toy Box. And you can reach that for free at doctorwhotoybox.co.uk. And that is curated by my good friend, David J. Howe. And if you know that name, David J. Howe's name appears in a lot of Doctor Who. He's been around for quite some time, actually since the first time I saw his name in print in 1984. Uh, he has a vast collection of Doctor Who with a museum that's set to open very soon in his hometown. I hope to visit that one day. Of course, a copy of the Bundles from Britain 1986 catalog is in his collection. So what a wonderful thing. If you're looking for great Doctor Who items at great prices, then look no further than DoctorWhoStore.com. It's in the name, DoctorWhoStore.com. It's owned by Alien Entertainment, and they are currently running a lot of sales on many various items. And if you happen to live in the Chicago suburbs, or at least the north and west suburbs, uh, you can choose free pickup from store. And their wonderful store in Lombard and now opening in Logan Square. So for your Chicago people, it's a little bit easier to get to Alien Entertainment. So you can uh, find out more at AlienEntertainment.com for store locations and hours. And, um, you know, I hope you visit. It's a wonderful place. And you can find great Doctor Who items at Forbidden Planet, one of our sponsors. Just visit our website and select Doctor Who merchandise links. And don't forget our own eBay store. We have lots of Target books and hardcovers and other items of uh, value that we use the money there to pay our bills at the podcast. So take a look there, especially with the Christmas season upon us. In addition to all of our podcasts posted on our website, we have the complete guide to Doctor Who classic hardcover books. And, of course, we do our series uh, as part of this podcast, our series of coverage on those classic hardcovers and what they're worth and where they came from and a little story about each one. Uh, so just tune into that. We'll have our classic 1981 episode sometime in the new year. Uh, we list a lot of reprints that some people didn't even know existed. And I recently uh, ran across a person who had another who had another copy of the elusive third printing of Loch Ness Monster. So apparently that one got a lot of uh, uh, circulation, which is really interesting. Chicago TARDIS 22 is now in the rearview mirror as of a week ago. And <clears throat> we're looking forward to the 60th anniversary celebration of Chicago Tartars 2023. I will be back at that conference, uh, probably presenting many different things. Uh, let me wrap up 2022. So um, what a great convention. It was a great weekend. 
Uh, for starters, uh, I, I was wearing my fifth doctor costume, so got a lot of attention there. A lot of people stopped for photographs and wanted to ask about it and that kind of thing. I participated in the Chicago TARDIS masquerade as just a, you know, just to, not to compete, but just to be on stage and have a little fun. And you can see some of those pictures on the uh, Facebook feeds of Chicago TARDIS. And um, you can uh, also see them on my own page at DrWhoCollectors.com or, or Instagram at DrWhoCollectors. So you can check that out. Um, got, to, got to talk to a lot of different uh, Doctor Who people, uh, including some big Finnish actors. Um, had some time, one-on-one -on -one time with Stephen Noonan, who's the uh, first Doctor with Big Finish. He has agreed to be on the podcast. Uh, had a wonderful, wonderful conversation with Daisy Ashford, and she is an amazing, amazing voice, an amazing person. I, I really felt drawn to her. She was really quite nice. And she, of course, has two Doctor Who star parents, her mother being Carol, the late Carolyn John and her father, Jeffrey Beavers, the dilapidated master from the Keeper of Trocken. And uh, it was just quite it'd be interesting to, have, uh, to talk to her. Um, of course, I also spoke with the great Tim Traylor, who will be a guest on the podcast. He is confirmed uh, for after the new year. He voices the third doctor and, and is actually going to be narrating the next uh, audiobook, which is Planet of Evil. So it should be quite something. He's got a great voice, a great guy, just a great overall guy. Really enjoyed the fans. And, of course, had some time to spend with my good friend Lauren Cornelius, who plays Dodo Chaplet. And she, it was great to see her and uh, spend some time with, with that, folks. Also got to spend some time with uh, Jason Hay Gallery. He's the CEO of Big Finish. Uh, he and I uh, connected uh, uh, together and... Uh, has had some great conversations. He's, a, he's just a wonderful guy, and we love seeing him at Chicago TARDIS. Uh, the big names at Chicago TARDIS, of course, uh, had a lot. Uh, had some time with uh, Fraser Hines, of course, uh, who sings our theme song. Just a wonderful fellow. Um, helped me out uh, with a few things. Got to talk to him quite a bit. It was really nice. Also spent some one-on-one -on -one time with uh, Wendy Padbury, and that was something because I got to talk to her. Um, and tell her about our Doctor Who podcast network, which was Direction Point, directly from the Crotons, which was one of my favorite stories. And she was just pleased that, you know, I could I could quote anything from the Crotons off the top of my head. And um, she really was wonderful to talk to. We spent quite a bit of time at the meet and greet, uh, mostly with her and Stephen Noonan at our table. Um, but it was really quite nice. Also in attendance there was the Seventh Doctor himself, Sylvester McCoy. Uh, I thanked him for the um, message for our podcast, but he didn't remember. I know it's uh, he does a lot of those things. So he he said th he said uh, you know I'm glad to do it, and uh, I don't remember it per se, but that's okay. Um, we got him to sign a copy of the Doctor Who magazine I have, where it has him on the cover as the new Doctor from 1987. Um, also got to talk with uh, Sophie Aldred. She was also in The Power of the Doctor with Sylvester, and uh, I got a picture with her in her ace jacket. It was really quite fun. She was really nice. Um, also, didn't get to talk much. I think she was a little shy, but uh, the, the wonderful Sophia Miles, who played the Madame de Pompadour uh, in the series, and she was very nice, very kind to her fans, but I think she was a little shy, um, and uh, that's okay. Some of the Doctor Who actors are like that, but uh, it was a lot of fun. Um, <clears throat> I did not see many of the others. So uh, I apologize for the extra noise. My cat, Molly, is joining me on the podcast. She's not speaking much, but wants lots of attention, as they usually do. So I'm trying to do both. <laughs> Anyway, it was a great convention. My talks went very well. The first thing I did was I did a, a session called um, Introduced by Howard De Silva, 
early Doctor Who viewing experiences. It was well attended. And I got to show some video um, of of the of the narrations and things like that. <coughs> Excuse me. And it was quite nice. It was very wonderfully intended. My my speaker on that was uh, was um, Stephen Warren Hill, who's the programming director at Chicago TARDIS. He also uh, was from my era of growing up with the series and had a lot of great things to say, including some information about the Howard De Silva um, introductions that were found in Red, White, and Who which he was an author, by the way. So that was really nice. Of course, I also uh, I did a, a guided discussion, a detailed guided discussion on Tomb of the Cybermen and uh, brought in the VHS copy, a DVD, a Target, and a hardcover. And we gave away that Target and the hardcover to two lucky people. So I hope you guys enjoy it. Thank you so much. Um, we had our podcast banner up in the hallway, and it got a picture. Uh, Chicago TARDIS took a picture of that and put it on their page. So thank you for that free advertising. I appreciate that a lot. On Saturday, the big day, Saturday memberships completely sold out completely sold out. So it was a big crowd. It was wonderful. And um, we did Doctor Who, the Doctor Who Collector's Showcase, which had a full room. Uh, and even Stephen Warren Hill came in for a few minutes of that. And, and, and we, we showed off. And a special thank you to my assistant, uh, Galen Jenkins, who helped me out with that. And it was quite nice to have a, a crowd of people that were like, wow, I've never seen that before. That was really something. Wow. Never saw that up close before. And had a chance to really talk about items that are out there. And that's my, it's my new presentation for, for the year. So I'm, I'm hoping that more conventions will pick that up and, and let people see these things in my mobile museum here in the Midwest. So it's quite, it's quite uh, exciting. Plus, that was a very exciting time. My inflatable Dalek got a little um, attention because, unfortunately, there were no Daleks this year in Dalek Alley. It was quite disappointing, uh, but I heard that the Dalek operators um, had all gotten sick. So, it, so an idea occurred to me: maybe, maybe I should build a Dalek or get some help in building a Dalek. So, if you'd like to help with uh, that project, we we would like to build a Dalek that we can take to Chicago TARDIS and have everybody participate with and have, take pictures with. I'm not looking to make one where I can sit inside and drive it around. I just want to make a null Dalek that we can push around and, and have fun with. Uh, so uh, I'm going to be starting either a crowdfunding or a, a Kickstarter or something like that real soon. So, you know, a couple of dollars here and there because it does cost a little bit to build the Dalek and it takes a lot of time. So I know that's going to be something else. And if I can ask for anybody out there who's built a Dalek to lend me your, your assistance, we did uh, sign on to the project Dalek Builder Forum, and we got some important information there and some plans and part lists and things like that. So it would be helpful to to kind of get into that because I thought I think there needs to be a Dalek at Chicago TARDIS. I hope they come back next year for the 60th, but in case they don't, maybe I should bring one myself. But my inflatable Dalek got a lot of attention. In fact, um, I had to uh, leave the collecting showcase quickly to go to my next panel, so I couldn't quite fully deflate him. So at one point, he was half deflated in the corner and got a photo with a meme. And then later, somebody stuffed him into one of the panelist chairs, and he was sharing in the uh, discussion. So it was really nice to see that. Um, that, that was a lot of fun. Um, and then Sunday, we, we uh, Saturday and Sunday, we spent some time in the Gaming Citadel where I guided people through a game of War of the Daleks and the Doctor Who Monster board game from 1975. And that was very popular. It was a lot of fun to do. Um, and uh, nice to experience these vintage board games uh, up close. And I hope uh, to do that again. That was a lot of fun. So that was uh, Chicago TARDIS. It was a great time. It was a lot of fun. Got to 
meet a lot of new people, got a lot of new new uh, requests on Facebook and Instagram for followers and picked up all, all my cards were taken, all my, uh, you know, all the all, people took pictures of the banner. So I welcome you all as listeners. If you're not, if you're new to the podcast, thank you so much for, for being a part of this. That was so much fun. So keep ChicagoTardis.com in your bookmarks, and you will experience the best Doctor Who convention in the Midwest, gearing up for the 60th anniversary special at Chicago Tardis 2023. What else is going on? Well, I am pleased to announce that I have conf- I am confirmed to be a guest at Consinity 2023, the Gathering of the Geeks, on Saturday, April 22nd, from 10 a.m. to 10 p.m. at Dirks Hall at the Milwaukee School of Engineering. And uh, my special thanks to Nick Seidler for that invitation. I guess it went well last year, and he wanted me to come back, so that was great. Um, we have proposed, uh, haven't heard back yet, uh, but we have proposed Doctor Who Collector's Showcase for the C2E2 convention in Chicago. That's uh, March 31st to April 2nd. So watch this space to see if that's going to happen at all. Uh, what's new in the collection? Yes, I did pick up a few things here and there. And I'm going to reach over and grab some things here. Um, I, I did uh, stop and picked up a few books to fill the uh, gaps here. A few new adventure titles, including First Frontier, War Child, The Sword of Forever, and Zamper. Uh, all in pretty good condition. Zamper is in used red condition, which, you know, is pretty good. Um, you know, I'm still looking to fill in those gaps. Um, I got uh, The Pirate Planet in paperback. That's a wonderful BBC Books. Uh, I have the hardcover, so it's nice to have the paperback. I got a copy of The Nightmare Fair in Target uh, paperback. It's in mint condition. And uh, it's it's a wonderful. The missing episodes, uh, the Celestial Toy Maker, so really nice stuff. So it's it's really good. And I decided to pick up the three reprints of the Muller books. These are a lot thinner, uh, with the original artwork on the covers and things like that. I didn't have a set of these, so I thought I'd do that. Um, but it was really nice. Um, I got a very nice uh, item. This was um, interesting. Uh, by the way of David J. Howe and Fraser Hines being my delivery man here, uh, I think I may have mentioned on a previous podcast, I, I bought an unbound proof of the Target book Gunfighters with all the editor's markings signed by Donald Cotton. That's a great find. But the seller uh, refused to ship it to the United States, so I arranged to have it sent to David J. Howe. I said I would pay you to ship it over, and he said, I'll just do one better. I'll give it to Frazier. And, of course, Frazier was so curious what was in the package, I opened it up in front of him while he was having breakfast, and I showed him what it was, and he said, wow, that's really cool. So, um, you know, it was really nice to to have – it's great to have friends in Doctor Who who – were in Doctor Who. So that was really quite something. Uh, And I will have some pictures of that available soon. I'm still going through it carefully. I want to make sure it's still in good shape and all that stuff. Um, But the seller did tell me that it was a hardcover proof, but it's not. It's actually the target proof. And uh, it shows that in the markings, especially when the, the target library number was wrong and a few other things that were changed. So it was very interesting. I'm going to compare it to the Gunfighters target book and see how that goes. So it's a good find. You know, proofs, unbound proofs, uh, another uh, element of Doctor Who collecting. I will do some, an episode on that when I get a chance uh, in the new year. We've got busy schedule in the new year. 
Um, I also now have a plunger to go with my Berwick Dalek playsuit. Found an original Berwick plunger uh, that matches the uh, the Dalek. So it's uh, so now all I need is an eye stock and a gun, and that will be a complete item. I'm looking forward to that. Um, I just got two copies of Doctor Who magazine issue 584 with David Tennant on the front, and. It seems that already copies of that magazine with Shudi Gawa on the front cover are going for thousands of dollars on eBay because I've gotten some emails for the outrageous offer. But I'm waiting to see if I can still get it for cover price before I pursue that because maybe they've sold out. I have no idea. We love talking to collectors, cosplayers, and anybody who participates in that area of Doctor Who. So you can share your story here. You can become a guest host. We'll turn over the microphone, uh, or I will conduct an interview, whichever you prefer. Just uh, email us at Podcast at gmail.com. On today's show... Um, We've got a really nice show today. I've I had a chance to record a live session at Chicago TARDIS presented by Brian Wiega, who is an engineer and built his own sonic screwdriver, which is kind of cool. Uh, his talk was called sonic Up, and it's about props, prop collecting, which is kind of an important part of, of the world of Doctor Who. I don't have any props in my collection, but I have friends who do, have, who do specialize in collecting props, and Brian Wiega is an expert in that. So um, his talk, you know, so basically we have a little introductory talk. I met with him after the talk to kind of put some introductory remarks in so you have a, a place to go. But then you're basically just going to listen to his talk at Chicago TARDIS. And I want to thank Chicago TARDIS, by the way, for, for this opportunity. And um, all of the visuals that he's referring to will have links on our website at DrWhoCollectors.com. Just go to this episode and all those links will be posted with this episode. So you won't be left out because I know it's hard to, when you're listening to this and go, hey, take a look at this. I can't. It's a podcast. And there's no video to go with this for Patreon. So uh, we're just going to do this uh, episode as it is. Uh, I want to thank, by the way, speaking of Patreon, I want to thank our patrons, anybody who supports us on Patreon. At this $15 level gets access to all of our additional media including special videos we do just for those folks and video copies of the interviews we do with our celebrities, such as David J. Howe, Sadie Miller, Lauren Cornelius, and including the ones coming down the road with Stephen Noonan, um, Andrew Skilleter, Tasha Achilleos. We got a lot of great people coming up. So just go to patreon.com backslash Doctor Who Collectors Podcast for more information. You can also support us at Podbean. So you just go to doctorwhocollectors.podbean.com. Click Become a Patron, and you can give us a dollar or $10, whatever you like to help us out with. We are still finally finishing off our, our fundraiser for Doctor Who legend Peter Purvis, who I'm pleased to say I will get booked sometime in the new year to be our guest for a 30-minute talk. Uh, he played Stephen Taylor with the first Doctor, and we're going to talk not just about merchandise from that era. We're going to talk about his career and his, his work on Doctor Who and give you just that perspective from someone who was, a, who was a companion in the early days of Doctor Who. And he was actually a companion with William Russell for the first um, part, you know, for part of the chase. And, of course, William Russell just turned 98. I would love to get him, but uh, I imagine that would cost me a little bit more than uh, what we're raising for Mr. Purvis. So uh, he'll be my highest ranking guest. So I'm really pleased uh, to get that. Uh, so if you'd like to help us out, finish off this donation, just go to our website at drwhocollectors.com, click donate, enter Peter Purvis in the message, and you will be added to the list of sponsors. 
Our theme song is Who's Doctor Who, composed by Barry Mason and Les Reed, performed by Fraser Hines. Um, and it's just a wonderful song uh, that Mason and Reed wrote. He all, they also wrote many other hits, including It's Not Unusual for Tom Jones. So um, Led Zeppelin's Jimmy Page plays guitar on it, which is pretty cool. So check that out. You can hear the whole song on YouTube. It's, uh, I believe, in the public domain these days. So uh, I have not, uh, I've tried to reach out to the publishers, but the publishers are not available. So I don't know who owns it now. So uh, we haven't been uh, copyright strike. We didn't, we got no copyright strikes on YouTube for the theme song yet. So we'll, we'll wait and see. If we do, we'll reach out and see if we can work out a permissions deal. Anyway, uh, hopefully uh, you got to meet Frazier at Chicago Tardis. I spent a lot of time with Frazier. He's a great guy. Uh, he's I, I would call him a friend. He's a good guy. Uh, you can hear this podcast, of course, anywhere you get your podcasts. You're listening to it, so you already have it. But tell your friends. Uh, Amazon Music, YouTube, Audible, Podchaser, Podtail, Podbean, um, and uh, many other providers have this, including Google and things like that. So we are a Direction Point Network podcast, directionpoint.org. After a quick break, where you can hear more about some of our great podcasts, uh, we will have our collection protection, main story, and today's most outrageous offer. Stay tuned. Hi, I'm Rupert Booth. I am known as Paul Ferry. And my name is Barry Williams. Together, we host Time Ram. Time Ram's a cruel mistress. It's a random number generator. That also. We roll a number from 1 to 30, and that's our doctor. Then 1 to 300 for the story, and then we ram them together. Even if it doesn't make sense. Cruel, I tell you. Time round. Putting the wrong doctors in the wrong stories, so you don't have to. You're listening to the Doctor Who Collectors Podcast. We are going on a journey. A very long journey through the world of the Target novelizations and publication order. Every week, we are looking at a new book, talking about Terrence Dix, Malcolm Hulk, and all our Doctor Who novelization friends. Whatever you do, keep turning the pages. This is Jason Miller of the Doctor Who Literature Podcast, a member of the Direction Point Podcast Network, and you are listening to the Doctor Who Collectors Podcast. Keep collecting. Are you ready to travel through time with us? Then check out Traveling the Vortex, a Doctor Who podcast. For nearly seven years and more than 500 episodes, we've traveled from one end of the vortex to the other, making different stops with different doctors, reviewing everything from TV stories to audio plays, from books to comics, and more. Sean, Keith, and Glenn take you on a journey through 50-plus years of Doctor Who episodes and spinoff materials. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts, so be sure to check us out. And now, we're a proud member of Direction Point, a Doctor Who podcast network. You're listening to the Doctor Who Collectors Podcast. Keep collecting. Sad, Red, isn't it? People spend all that time making nice things, and other people come along and break them. And now it's time for Collection Protection. Collection Protection brought to you by Bags Unlimited Incorporated. For all of your media protection needs, bagsunlimited.com. Anyway, today we're actually going to be trying to protect or display, in this case, your sonic screwdriver collection and do it safely so that it doesn't fall off a shelf or roll off of a 
display case or anything like that. Um, I'm not going to go with these heavy uh, heavy end display cases. I think you could go that route if you choose, uh, especially if you own a prop. You might want to get something a little sturdier. But I found for my uh, my uh, toy sonic screwdrivers, uh, one of the best things that uh, you can use, and I uh, found something to hold, especially my Spirit of Light sonic screwdriver, is a doll stand. And I may have talked about this before, but I wanted to tie this into today's episode since today's episode's about sonic screwdriver props and sonic screwdrivers. So um, the sonic screwdrivers are really a lot of fun, but uh, I can recommend a company here. It's called AliExpress or A-L-I Express altogether.com. And they sell every variety of doll stands. Now, in addition to sonic screwdrivers, you can use these to hold your action figures, your Doctor Who figurines, or your plastic mold figures, or or anything that, you know, needs to be stood up that doesn't normally stand up by itself. And it really does keep it uh, protected. It's got a uh, plastic base with a, with a support knob at the top that you wrap around the top. And uh, they're very inexpensive. I mean, uh, for some of these, uh, they're as low as a penny a piece, up to $11.23, depending on what you're buying and what size you need. You can uh, measure your sonic screwdriver and then get the exact uh, thing you need there. You may also find these same stands uh, on Amazon.com, although I found those to be a little more expensive and the same product. So uh, they are neither neither company is a sponsor. So um, I want to just point that out. So there's a lot of different ways. Of course, if you want to go heavy duty on that, you can find some crystal cases and things like IKEA has things like that, or or any collection um, store that deals with collection of sports memorabilia or anything like that, and you can go uh, custom to do that. So I'm I'm not an expert on prop collecting, but I know somebody who is. So that's <laughs> how that goes. Anyway. Um, so yeah, so today's collection protection: how to how to display your sonic screwdrivers or your action figures or anything that needs uh, help standing up. AliExpress.com, A-L-I-E-X-P-R-E-S-S.com. That's my recommendation for today. You have been listening to Collection Protection. Stay tuned. Hi, I'm Juliet. And I'm Nathan. Experience Doctor Who from the very beginning through a classic fan's eyes. And through the eyes of a new Who fan. Reminisce and relive those classic moments with Nathan as he offers fun insight. Or experience them for the first time with Juliet as she dwells on social issues, history, fashion, and the size of a flashlight. We're the Time Streams Podcast. Find us on Spotify, Stitcher, or Apple Podcasts. You're listening to the Doctor Who Collectors Podcast. Keep collecting. Hello, fellow time travelers, and welcome to the Doctor Who Target Book Club podcast, the only podcast to discuss, in story order, all the Doctor Who novelizations. My name is Tony Whit, and every two weeks or so, I'm joined by a two- to three-person discussion panel, including our so-called expert who's been a Who fan since 1979. That would be me. We also get the views of intermediate, casual, and novice fans who either have never seen the show or who have never read these books until these podcasts, including Dalton Hughes and Alison Fitzsafried. You can find us on iTunes, Stitchers, or wherever you find good podcasts, or even ones like ours. You're listening to the Doctor Who Collectors Podcast on the Direction Point Podcast Network. Keep collecting!
Up there is the scanner. Those are the doors. That is a chair with a panda on it. Sheer poetry, dear boy. And now it's time for the main story on the Doctor Who Collectors podcast. We're going to be catching up with Brian Wiega at Chicago TARDIS. We recorded his Sonic Up panel live. And just to kind of introduce you to what you're about to hear, I'm here with Brian Wiega. Brian, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Larry. I've been uh, I've been enjoying your deep dives into the the, the dusty corners of fandom and uh, and and uh, you know it's it's delightful getting lost in the weeds of, of all the little variations oh. of bits and pieces because I, I do that with the sonic screwdriver props like sure. with the the kind of group of nerds that um, that I run with we're we're trying to help like Nick Roboto and, and various mm-hmm. things like that to try and get all the details exactly right and um, uh, Brian Terranova, whose um, collection of ebooks I use extensively in the panel, uh, he's a madman. He's um, he he can track which pieces on which sonic screwdriver go here or there based on the location of the set screws and Ooh, knowing what yeah. st- what order stories were filmed in, so you can track damage based on filming order and things like that. And so it's. Um, it's a delight. It's a delight getting lost in the weeds, just as long as you don't actually get lost. There. Right, right. No, and it's, it's a lot of fun to do, and thank you so much for your kind words. Um, I know a lot of collectors want to get into the world of prop collecting, and that's something you're going to hear in this live uh, recording that's coming up. Um, any, any initial um, introductory thoughts here on this area in prop collecting and, and looking what to look for? Yeah, I mean, so my background is that... The son- I think I mentioned this in the panel, just very, very uh, truncated, is that um, I became an engineer because of the sonic screwdriver, mm-hmm. because in the 90s I could get any kind of Star Trek toy I wanted, and then I saw this amazing steampunk romantic uh, film with Paul McGann that was exciting, and it was weird, and it was British, and, and then I immediately went out and I wanted to get Doctor Who toys. I wanted a sonic screwdriver, and there weren't any available, so no, I had to no. learn how to build things to make my own and then I started getting more and more sophisticated I ended up building, I got the technical manual, I ended up building a complete TARDIS toolkit mm. out of just just junk right. um, but granted <laughs> that's what they made the original out of right, um, right, right. and uh, and that, that kind of uh, that sort of foundation was right when I was finishing up high school and um, at the end of high school I'd been doing community theater and I kind of uh, rolled that all together in a unlicensed episode of Mystery Science Theater that mm-hmm. I created um, with a bunch of the theater kids. So we turned my garage into the Satellite of Love. Oh, that's great. And uh, <laughs> I built all the puppets and things. And then I went off to school and I became an engineer. And mm-hmm. now that's that sort of interest in the theatrical and fiction combined with the engineering is now my career, which is... Um, we designed motion picture film scanners, these sort of very sophisticated optic slash robotic systems mm-hmm. that deal with sort of priceless original copies of film that are they're literally decomposing. I mean, some of these are so volatile, they have to be stored in nitrogen environments, like wow. if you're welding. And mm. um, and uh, and it's it's delightful because these machines are used to preserve and save the master copy of amazing movies like the first science fiction film ever made right, by right. Georges Méliès and um, 
we were building one thing and the customer completely freaked me out by bringing um, the uh, Kubrick's original hand-cut negative of 2001 A Space Odyssey wow. <laughs> to try the machine out, and it was brand new. I'm like, don't you have anything cheaper? Yeah. But, you know, I bit my tongue, and, and they liked it. And, and so now, you know, anything, a lot of things that you'll see digitally on iTunes or, or things like that that have been upscaled um, are on my machines. That's a great, great feather in my cap. I wanted yes. to go into special effects, but now um, I'm really happy kind of preserving preserving the history of film and uh you know not just movies but things like newsreels sure and um there's a lot of there's a lot of impetus to save historical photographs but not Mm -hmm. a lot of impetus to save historical newsreels and it's the same thing you you really can't tell where you've been unless you actually save the photographs. You can even even the terrible stuff, even the even right, the right. horrendously racist past that we have in mm-hmm. film. If 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 you if you can't save it, you're whitewashing over it, and you're doomed to repeat the mistakes. So mm-hmm. so the sonic screwdriver, this sort of magic wand, multi tool that could mm-hmm. do anything, um, turned into um, engineering. Which is also in its own way this sort of magical multi-tool that can create anything and do anything, and mm-hmm. it's um, I'm, I'm just delighted to be a real-life Swiss Army knife, sonic screwdriver, what have you. And that's great. <laughs> so, um, my listeners, what you're about to hear is a pre-recorded um, presentation by Brian Wiga. All of the things he's going to refer to visually, uh, we will try to have as many links in the description of this podcast as possible, so that you can follow along, including any publications he refers to. So I ask you to just stay tuned and enjoy the presentation. It's a wild one. Welcome to I Am Sonic Up, the, uh, the history of uh, Doctor Who props. Uh, my name is Brian. I'm a collector, and uh, I actually have a real interesting story with the sonic screwdriver in that um, in the 90s, after the TV movie came out, I um, I had been able to get all of these amazing Star Trek toys at every every Target, every toy store, where I could get phasers and communicators and uh, tricorders. But then I saw this amazing movie that um, that I loved the whole nonviolent aspect of the here. I loved how British it was. I loved the designs of everything, which was this sort of steampunk uh, amazement before steampunk even existed, and. I couldn't find any toys, none of them. So I started making my own. <laughs> and uh, that started me tinkering on things. And then, um, and then I got into uh, the puppets from Mystery Science Theater, and we used that to make fun of some Doctor Who that deserved it, Time in the Ronnie. And, um, and that has kind of, that little through line has traveled throughout my entire career. And now I'm the uh, head of engineering at a uh, robotics company that designs motion picture film scanners that are used to save every movie, every vintage movie that you've probably ever seen. They're used all over the world. So like um, Warner Brothers, um, everything that Warner Brothers has put up that was uh, before 2000, so all the Batman movies, all, all the really fun stuff, that's... Two guys in one of our scanners uh, saving those prints and making them available for streaming. And, uh, you know, a couple other feathers in my cap. Uh, 2001 A Space Odyssey was, um, 
restored on one of our scanners, the world's first science fiction movie, An Earth to the Moon, in 1899, was, was done on one of our scanners. So it all comes back to this amazing fictional device that um, originally was a throwaway plot gag in Fury from the Deep to tie into something six episodes later, or five. And so this is a quote from Stephen Moffat that um, really struck with me, and one of the reasons why I just love these tools so much, which is the doctor is a different kind of hero. They didn't give him a gun. They gave him a screwdriver to fix things. And they didn't give him a tank or a warship or an X-wing fighter. They gave, they gave him a call box where people could call for help. And then they didn't give him a superpower like a freeze ray or pointy ears, but they gave him two hearts. And so the sonic screwdriver to me is a huge part of why the show is so wholesome and so British and so such kind of silly sci-fi because the sonic screwdriver doesn't work at all. It's a flashlight, just like all of your toys. It's, it's always been a flashlight except for a bit in the 70s when they used, uh, they used a couple of props they stole from Jerry Anderson. We'll, we'll get through that. So I wanted to walk these things around because um, I'm going to be talking about props a lot and there's sort of two... Um, the two different variations of props that they use on set. So there are the hero ones, which are used for all of the close-up shots and, uh, and that look nice and uh, they get photographed when they're making all the toys and things like that. And then there are the stunt props, which are uh, either you know, something that's just used in the background or it's, uh, it's something that's made out of foam rubber that's in a fight scene, so they're going to fight with a book, but they don't want to damage the people who are fighting, and so they make a foam rubber book. Um, so I wanted to show you, uh, I brought two uh, actual props used on Doctor Who. Joe, do you think you could help me out with something real quick? Um, I want to give you one of these props and have you wander around and show everybody so they can kind of see the difference. Sure. Ross, are you game? Uh, sure. Okay. <laughs> so Joe has the stunt prop. So this is, this is a stunt background version of one of the uh, communicators that's used in Matt's, the first episode that Matt Smith filmed which is the time of angels, where he screams at Angel Bob. And Ross is going to be walking around with a very iconic hero prop, which is the actual sonic screwdriver that was used from season one through three of the show. Not all of it's original. I'll, I'll get into that. So, um, so with this, this communicator, there's, there are hero light-up ones that, that Matt Smith wore, and the one that I've got <laughs> is uh, one that they just clipped on one of the background actors. And, um, and so, so that kind of gives you a range of how props kind of work. So we're, when we're talking about um, you know, how many of these props they had or anything like that. Now, the sonic screwdriver inspired me to restore film and, and save, save, save movies from, from uh, from obscurity and, and decomposing into plastic explosive because that's what the early uh, film stock is actually made out of. Is, is It's just sweating plastic explosives, terrible stuff. 
But what, what's very cool is um, a few years ago at the uh, Bristol University, uh, a couple of crazy British kids actually made a working sonic screwdriver. And I just wanted to show you, it's not, it's not quite what you see on screen. This is just a very quick video. So, yeah. So what they did <laughs> is they came up with this sort of gauntlet that can lift small objects. So every one of these little, these little. Oh, you want to just drop it on the table? Thank you. Thank you. Um, every one of these little uh, round things that he strapped to his hand is essentially a sonic cage. It's like a, a laser beam that sends out a very fine, um, a very fine, very directed sound wave. And because you've got an array like this, it effectively becomes a cage. So what it can do is it can take a very lightweight object like this little, this little dot you're seeing right there, and it can, it can levitate it. And it's like, okay. So it, this is actually something that's very useful because um, it's, it's very similar to like those, um, those toys where you see where like a TARDIS is held between two magnets and you, and you can spin it. But there are a lot of very dangerous materials that you can't use magnetic fields on. Um, so like uranium or, um, or various other types of waste or, or things, uh, you know, very exotic materials that you would, say, create in a particle accelerator. And you can't touch these and you can't, um, you can't manipulate them by normal means. And so what they've done is they've created a gauntlet that you can that you can grab, you can you can hold the little devices with a cage of sound waves and move them around. Now, here it is. Here's the sonic screwdriver. Although I would call it a sonic cone. So what it is, it's a ball-shaped device with all of these all of these little sonic uh, sonic laser beams, and it creates a. Um, it creates a cage that will hold the device, but because it's a bowl and it's in a round shape, they could do something really amazing, which is they can set it, and you can push a button, and it's rotating in one direction, and then you can pulse it in another direction, and it'll rotate in the other direction. And so, as of 2016, a sonic screwdriver actually exists. Granted, it's made out of tin foil, and but you can actually pick up pick up devices, uh, you know, very light things that are dangerous, and you can spin them using sonic beams, which I think is very cool. So that is that's the real sonic screwdriver. So you can see just a. A still from the the photo. So, the way this thing worked oh, is you have this sort of bowl shape of all these little all these little sonic laser beams that are holding it up, and they're and they're they're pulsing, and they're just holding the thing in place. And um, like an electric motor, if you take that pulsing force and you rotate it, what it will effectively do is it will. It will do little micro pushes of whatever the device, whatever you're holding, and it'll move it in either direction. So, so that's a real sonic screwdriver. That's a lot of really, really intense tech. 
And now I'm going to tell you about how cheap the BBC was. So because I was told that uh, this panel was going on while I was at the airport, <laughs> I'm relying a lot on my friend uh, Brian Terranova's ebook that's available at this site, Kisturberus. <laughs> Um, he's done one about the classic series sonic screwdriver and one about the tenant era sonic screwdriver, which uh, we're going to be going through. And then there's, a, there's some, some very fun uh, little details from the person who actually built them, which is Nick Roboto at Rubber Toe Props, for the 11s, the 12s, and the 13s. Um, uh, Brian, just to give him a little bit of background, Brian is a part of a, a little team of extreme sonic nerds like myself who have been doing a lot of the research on these vintage props to help Nick make the most accurate copies ever made. And, um, and so we've been, we've been tracking all kinds of sonic nonsense, and now we're very invested in these little flashlights. So you guys ready? This is from a missing episode. This is the first sonic screwdriver ever made. It only exists in telesnaps. Oh. It only exists in telesnaps, but it was this, this little object they held on top of this bolt, and the bolt, the bolt came up. And that was just a throwaway script gag because the villain of this, five episodes later, is this seaweed monster that they find can be, can be scared away by sound waves. And so there's this little throwaway scene at the very beginning of the show where uh, Patrick Troughton says, oh yeah, I know about sound waves. Here's a sonic screwdriver. Look at what it can do. And then five episodes later, he rigs together a very large sonic device that takes the seaweed monster and... Um, and uh, chases it away. And originally, at least according to uh, the script writer, it was going to be a pen light, you know, like this, just a 1960s pen light. And then they dropped it in the box. So what they did is they yanked something off of Victoria's life vest. And I'm pleased to show you the world's first sonic screwdriver. It's a life vest whistle. <laughs> And so you can actually see here in this shot, Patrick Troughton is about to christen the most famous fictional tool in history, and it's a life whistle. But then, you know, they got they um, they they got the prop back together, and they used um, they used a pen light again, which. Um, we're not sure because nobody ever saw the pen light that they dropped in there. It's probably really similar to the one they used later, but who knows? So after that, um, you had a pen light. It was used in one intermediate story as sort of a hollow tube that had a firework in it so we could cut a hole in a wall. But then in the war games, um, he uses this this style of pen light, this is actually a modern replica because the originals, now that it's been found out what it is, they go for hundreds, thousands of dollars, uh, ridiculous. But, um, but they used this type of pen light that you could get at any corner drugstore. And he showed in the war games that he was from an advanced civilization by taking a screw out of a gun, just like before. So all the sonic screwdriver was, was something that they would do an insert shot and a bolt would move up and a bolt would move down. 
Then we get to the 70s. Now, can I see your, can I see your, yes. your, your sonic screwdriver, Larry? Thanks. So we have this very iconic prop. And uh, how many people in here have one of these? Congratulations. That's six, seven times as many as they had on the show. There's only one. Just like they only had one pen light, and then they dropped it in there, so they used the whistle. They only ever had one of these, and they didn't even make it. So in the 70s, uh, the early 70s, when um, the, uh, the Gary Anderson uh, puppet animation show uh, shows were kind of ramping down, the Doctor Who production office bought all of their stuff. And so, like, a lot of the Tom Baker era spaceships that you see are Jerry Anderson models that they've, like, hacked in half and, like, glued back together haphazardly. And the special effects guys at the time just wondered why they didn't keep the old ones because they look so much better. So the sonic screwdriver was two props. One, there was a saboteur who had this sort of futuristic... Uh, handle that you would use for sabotage. And so he was, he was nefarious, you can tell because he's got black gloves, and he was nefariously disconnecting wires and Thunderbirds are go. And then the top was a microphone for a puppet from Captain Scarlet and the Mysterions. And then they needed a, they wanted to use a sonic screwdriver again um, because they wanted to be able to open a door without a lock picking sequence. So they made the first screw, sonic screwdriver. And uh, I believe the first time that it actually went out um, was the Sea Devils where they, um, they took the original sort of spirally paint on it and they added a, a whole bunch of other colors so it was nice and bright in 70s and had that kind of aesthetic. But, the, um, they actually just used the handle a couple episodes earlier in filming time uh, in Colony in Space, where it's used as a futuristic um, handcuff lock. And if you've ever been wondering what this slot is for on the side, you know, whether it's some sort of futuristic thing, it's because at, um, either the Doctor Who production office or somebody else put a belt clip on the, uh, on the saboteur handle. And then Doctor Who took it off. And that's it. For, uh, from 1973 to 1980, one prop. Uh, in season 10, they took, all, they took all the guff off and they screwed a magnet to the back. And I've talked to Matt Irvine, who is the one that, uh, he's, uh, he's in charge of the canine props. And he's, he's the one who screwed the magnet onto the back, and that's his claim to fame with the sonic screwdriver. But if you watch, because if you watch show by show in filming order, you can just see the thing get beat up and beat up more and more, and every single piece of damage just continues. And the funny thing is if you watch for it in the classic series, the head never quite, quite stayed on. So there are lots and lots of episodes like Tom Baker's first one, it fell off in his pocket. Then he put it back on. Then, um, you know, in things like Genesis of the Daleks or the Hand of Fear, it's just, it's, it's hanging out on the little wire that was on the, that was on the original microphone. And that's it. Technically, they had two. Because... 
they blew up one that looked like it had been made out of cardboard. And that sonic screwdriver, um, they wrote it out because classic Doctor Who has a very long pace and um, they'd run out of stuff to do if they didn't have to have lock picking sequences. So they wrote it out. And, um, and apparently it was stolen from John Nathan Turner's desk. So out there is the original sonic screwdriver, but it's well known that it's been stolen. So it's going to be like some of those Picassos where you'll never see it again. Or the, uh, the Aston Martin from Goldfinger. For the TV movie, um, what, uh, what the, the guys did is they're like, well, okay, Doctor Who has a sonic screwdriver. So they, um, they made one, and then, uh, and then they decided they wanted it to collapse down to fit in a pocket. So they made one. It went to, and this is the exact piece that inspired me to become an engineer, because I built one of these out of, out of PVC pipe and the, uh, the closing pieces of a spring-loaded toilet paper center roll so that, so that I would let it go and it pop up. It's the coolest thing ever. I wish I kept it. And so they only had one. And, uh, and it went up to auction, and I was willing to hawk my car for it, but somebody wanted it just a little bit more than I did. So I ended up with the next best thing, which was the next one they used on screen. So now we're going to get into the... Uh, do you, anybody have any questions about the classic Sonics or, or BBC cheapness yet before I dive into the really bougie, high-powered BBC series the new one started by Russell T. Davies, where they had two. They had two sonic screwdrivers. One of them, the, 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 originally they, they had two. They were built by a company called Aztec Models. And they were held together with super glue and, um, and really, really difficult to, to deal with. But uh, one of them, you could pull the head out and that's the one that I kept the middle of. And then there was, uh, oh, and just so, this is about uh, prop collecting. So how do I know that this is the original one that when I was given the body? Because they never repainted it. The BBC was so cheap, they never repainted it. So if you look, every single crack in it matches, in my piece, matches the original publicity photo of the thing from 2004. And every one of the modern scratches just lines up with this, uh, this close-up from human nature where the prop had seen better days. You can actually tell the head's on crooked. It's being held on by hot glue. And so right after that, they finally built some more. But I'm going to get into the other one. So mine was sort of the hero prop um, for quite a few of the series. Um, but you couldn't... You had, to, uh, you had to cut the camera and then pull the, pull the head out, so do the extending action that later on you were just able to do with your thumb. So it was more fun for the actor. So they had another one of these static props. Um, as far as we can tell, it didn't, the head didn't even come out. It was just like the solid one. And it was called the cream Aztec because um, instead of kind of a grayish uh, paint, it had kind of a cream paint. Um, they were kind of working out what the finishes were going to be on the TARDIS console that they were matching, and these two kind of came out different. And so they only used this in, in the first filming block, and it shows up half dozen times on screen. 
then they then they took it and uh, you can see there's this micro switch and they're like well we need to make the micro switch move up and down so they cut a giant ugly channel in it so that they could move the micro switch up and down but then this prop you could only use from one side because um, if, if it was pointing in the wrong way, you just see this big, ugly channel that they didn't want to say. Mm. So um, that was in series one and two, while, while my prop, the, the gray Aztec prop, was being used as sort of the, the hero close-up prop whenever you needed to see the whole body. This one was sort of the close-up prop that you could, that the actor could turn the light on and then extend at the same time. And they're like, well, that's pretty ugly. So in season three, when they were starting to revamp the props, they took the same body, the same heads, the same electronics, the same everything. They filled in this giant channel with putty. They cut a tiny slider on the other side, and they made kind of the prototype for what we consider the modern uh, David Tennant Sonic. And then they took my body and discarded it and used the end caps. Uh, they, they used the end caps on this guy, the, the second one that was the cream one, and then they cut it and put two different sliders in it. Um, they used that on one of the, one of the, um, the new props they made in season four. And, um, and then mine, they took it off and they, uh, they put it on the one that David Kent Tennant kept. So we, can, we matched up by where all these little characteristic nicks were, um, that it's the one from my props. So these end caps are fakes, and they always will be, because David Tennant's never going to give up the bits of his Sonic. So there were two. Um, they, they used them for filming in Series 4. One of them they made look real nice, and that's the one that David Tennant kept. And if any of you have the uh, Wand Company uh, TV remotes, that's the... Um, that's the Sonic, the Tenth Doctor Sonic screwdriver. It's actually scanned from the original prop, uh, even to the point where they couldn't figure out how to do the paint. So what they did is they molded a piece of plastic that has every single crack matching David Tennant's Sonic, which is super fun. So, so if you have one of those, it's really close to an original prop. The other one. When, when they were finishing up, you know, they, they made a nice one for David Tennant. The other one they covered in goo for the 11th hour, and it completely fell apart. And that's what it's like today. And it's owned by a private collector who doesn't want, doesn't want anybody to know he has it, which more power to him. That's it. So what we had, you know, Doctor Who, this big budget new thing, they had two Sonics. They had this one that they, they changed a whole bunch of times. They had mine, which they didn't. Then they took the end bits off of it, and they made two tenant props, these two, the one that David kept and then the one that they gooped up. And then they only had one left. So in, uh, for the 50th anniversary special, they took, they took a prop replica that had been made by a company by MFX, and they used four of those uh, because David ended up breaking two of them, and he didn't want to break his original one. So that's, that's the tenant Sonic. Um, and uh, basically everybody, uh, everybody agrees that sort of the, um, the, the season four revamp where it's got the little slot and, and you can move it up and down with your finger is sort of the iconic one. So that's the, um, 
that's sort of what all the toys are based on. Then you get to the 11th Dr. Sonic Screwdriver. You had a new producer. You had a new, larger budget. So they made four of them. Four. So how much did four of those cost? So uh, the question for the, the podcast yes. people is, how, did, how much did four of those cost? And basically, Nick Roboto, um, who, uh, who did... Uh, who did the revamp of the, of the Tenant Sonic for Series 4, which is why it looked a lot better. And then he also, he's made from scratch every single Sonic that's been on the show since uh, the revamp. Uh, sorry, since the Master's Laser. So he, he built the 11s, he built the 12s, he built the 13s, and I, I don't have exact... Uh, uh, um, I don't have it confirmed yet, but I have it on very good authority that he made um, the uh, 14th Doctor Tenant three and a half um, new Sonic screwdriver. And so I don't know what the, uh, the what he actually charged the studio for, but the first one, which is this guy up here, um, he made by hand. Um, they gave him they gave him a week. To make that they had the, the concept art, and the whole idea was is that this thing would extend a lot further. You would you would flick it out, you'd flick the um, you'd flick the cage out with your thumb, you'd you'd toss it back in your hand, you'd pop the cap open, and you'd use it like a CSI mag light where they're where they're looking around everywhere. And so the original Sonic looked like this. Which, by the way, uh, I'm not going to go into too much detail because Nick Roboto's site, uh, Rubber Toe Replicas, go on, there you go, Rubber Toe Replicas has a great potted history of this, uh, including all of the all of the behind the scenes shots and everything like that. So, it originally looked like this, where where it, it came out a lot longer, and you flipped up the cap on the back, and that's why all the toys have a have a red button on the back, which you never use, and was never used on the show except for in one shot. So, Matt Smith was given this beautiful new prop, and he was looking at it, and the first thing he did is break it into two pieces. <laughs> Um, which, you know, wasn't great for Nick because he'd spent all, he'd spent basically no sleep for a week building the thing. And what he said, <laughs> the, uh, the props, the standby props guy said to him, mock crying, it's like, we're going to break so many of these things. <laughs> and so that was when he was doing it CSI mag style. But then when he was playing with it, what he decided, what Matt Smith decided, is he really liked West Side Story, where you know, you know, there's all the dancing and the snapping, and the um, the the jets and the sharks would fling out their switchblades and go jets, sharks, jets, sharks, and so Nick had to completely rebuild these things. So instead of it being like a mag light, <laughs> it could stand to be tossed. Like this, like this, uh, and abused. And so, there's a, a convention story where um, it has been told that Matt Smith basically broke one of these on set almost every day of filming. 
and so the, at, at one point they had screwed some shut and um, and so you know all of the, but um, if you any of you do any of you have a toy of this it's completely screen accurate to a couple of scenes where they um, where whenever they needed to throw the sonic around um, they uh, they use the toy they, they painted it a little bit and they did did a little bit of filler putty so by the time Matt Smith was done, um, they had cut one, one of the four, original four Sonics up to make a Sonic cane, and then there'd been some that are broken, and then Matt Smith got one that was nice, and there was one surviving, and it's that one. <laughs> the one in the middle that still has the, the cap on the end. But um, uh, Peter Capaldi, they, they needed more Sonics, so... At this point, uh, Nick Robata was just starting up his replica company, and he wanted to make. He wanted to make. He finally got the okay from the BBC to make exact copies of the Sonic screwdrivers. So he improved the design a little bit. He took the back off, and he um, and he made three more for the production, and and then he made some replicas at the same time. So if you were lucky enough to get one of like the first, um, I don't know how many, maybe it's 20, maybe it's 50, he never told me, um, of the first Sonics, they're literally from the same parts bin as Capaldi's Sonics. Wow. So, so I'm very happy with this one that's got a low number. Um, I, and it's, uh, it's a great design. It takes a lot of abuse. Um, but uh, so, and... Um, there's a little Easter egg. You guys notice this um, this green this green little bulb on the end? Yeah. Remember that. There's it comes it comes in handy later. So so then Nick Burbato started making making the others, and uh, he had his replica business up and running, and things were pretty easy. So like he made the he made the twelve. Um, and again, on his website, he's got a great kind of history showing the um, showing the concept art and everything that he made. And um, he made the first one by hand. Then he made a bunch for the production and made some replicas at the same time. So if you're lucky enough to get some of the early ones, there you go. Same parts bin. Um, and uh, and he worked really closely with character options on this. So, you know, I said, if you've got a an 11 Sonic, you're real lucky. It's what was used on screen. Um, if you've got a 12 Sonic, you're also lucky because they use stunt ones on screen. So there's like one in Oxygen that a, a robot guy crushes. That was one of the toys. There was one that... Um, that a uh, that he pops in half and uses as a pen in World Enough and Time, I believe that's the name of it. The one with the one with the creepy Cyberman with flesh hands. Um, that's a toy, and um, and the toys are remarkably accurate, like exceptionally accurate. Because when he made a whole bunch for the production, he also made one without all the paint and the finishes on it to the toy company. And they scanned it, and that's what they made the toy out of. So if you hold this next to a toy, it's really close. There's, um, there's a difference in a couple of rivets and things, and uh, this sort of claw-y business, you know, it doesn't open up. It's molded as one piece, but it's dead on. Everything else is the same. Did it open up on the show? Uh, no, they never ended up opening up the little claw things on the side. Nick also did a really cool thing where on the back there was a screw hole. You see how it's got this sort of this sort of uh, square cage section on the top? Yeah. On the back there's one screw 
and it pulls off, and then there's just a, a, a little pipe on it and the lights. And the idea was is that the uh, production wanted to be able to have different attachments on it. And they never ended up using it. But, you know, it's, it's an iconic prop. It's, um, you know, if it had been used more than, like, one season and some specials, it probably would have had all that, the, those cool stuff. Yeah. Um, I wish they would make more 10 ones, really. Yeah. I had to go on Etsy to get, to, to get a special one last year. Oh, okay. It was, it's, a, it's a hybrid of the, uh, the fourth Doctor one the tenth Doctor one. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's tons of customs and stuff. Um, if you want to get, like, super crispy, accurate ones, um, you know, Nick Roboto, having built the, the first set, he's the one. Um, he's the one. Anytime he opens up a run for his, they are dead on. Um, I have it on good authority that uh, somebody had some uh, very good reference to make an earlier version of one. Um, uh, by a company called Little Shop Props, okay. who I sent full measurements of my original prop, and and they've made, uh, they're making copies um, of the original two sonic screwdrivers that were used in seasons one through three. Okay. So the one with the ugly channel and mine. Okay, because uh, my my one is getting up there now. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, if you can get the remote control, like I said, it's so dead on to the yeah. tenant sonic, it's pretty good. I just can't risk it, though, because the batteries might not work. Yeah. Um, I mean, the wand company is super cool about telling you how to replace them, but it is something that you need a soldering iron and a little bit of patience. Um, so I'm just going to get on to the, the new sonic screwdriver, the Jody one. Um, which again, he, you know, Nick built completely from scratch, and it's it's really an amazing piece of engineering because he managed to get a motor so the end could spin, and uh, a ton of LEDs, and uh, and make it all fit in this amazing sort of hand sculpted organic piece of pewter. Now, if you're wondering how Nick, you know made them, worked with them to decide what, what finish this Sonic could be. He had the concept art and he brought them a ray gun that he had made before he had the, the Sonic screwdriver uh, license from the BBC. He made a whole bunch of really cool ray guns and wrist devices, one of which ended up on the show um, uh, with Capaldi. And with this ray gun, he very cheekily reused the bulbs from the 11th Doctor Sonic um, to, uh, to be part of this, uh, this giant light-up amazing actuator. But then that was the sort of proof of concept, and that's, that's how the uh, 13th Dr. Sonic Screwdriver is cast out of pewter. And so this is just one last little behind-the-scenes bit. Um, of the uh, of him building the Sonic things, um, and uh, so he sculpted this thing out of just basically putty, and then that Sheffield steel mark that's in the back, he 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 etched it with a laser, and then and then cast the whole thing in pewter, so it looks like one of those spoons that has the the thing in it. So now I'm just going to talk real briefly about screen use props because I've got a few, and how can you avoid getting ripped off, and so. If you see it on eBay, it's fake. If it's, um, if it's available for less money than uh, what would be considered way too much money, it's fake. Um, 
So this is one of my pieces. Like I mentioned, you know, this this communicator here is the Angel Bob communicator, is the the stunt one. This is one of the Hero Light Up ones that um, I was able. To, I got it from a uh, reputable collector, which I don't know if his name. He wants to be um, he wants to be known, so I'm not going to say who it is. But um, so I got it from him, so I was pretty sure. But then. They all have different weathering styles, and I was able to match it exactly to the scene where Matt Smith screams at Angel Bob and says the iconic line, we have comfy chairs. And so that's a pretty good way to say, okay, I, I'm pretty sure that that's actually a prop. Also, the, the internal construction of it is way too much work if somebody was gonna try and make a fake. Um, I also have been involved with um, uh, restoring the, uh, the TARDIS console, um, the, the one from the McGann TV movie, and Phil Siegel had the original TARDIS toolkit and gifted it to us, and it included a pre-production sonic screwdriver that, as far as we can tell, is, was never actually used on screen, but it's um, a prop that was available from a place called 800 Trekker that they, that they weathered up and, yeah. and painted. Yeah. Uh, they use the 800 Trekker TARDIS keys too. Um, yep. Yes. Uh, yes. And so they they did a really crummy paint job on the bullet and everything. And I have I have a uh, a bombshell for you because that's the other screen use Sonic in my collection. No, I'm lying. Um, because I've seen the original, I was able to make one where every single mark, every single scratch, every single paint splatter is exactly the same as the original. So screen matching is not necessarily the smoking gun, um, but it's, it's a really good start. But here's one of my other pieces, and I got this from Matthew Doe at the Reliquary. So right now he's doing a lot of, um, what he does is he works with people like Mike Tucker um, that are restoring really interesting props uh, especially ones with foam rubber, and when bits fall up, he, he cuts them up and he makes little little um, little displays so that you can you can you can have a little a little tiny thing to throw on your shelf, a paperweight. And I got from him these two pawns from my favorite Doctor Who story of all time, The Curse of Fenric. And I was really jazzed to get the pawns because half of the uh, chess set went up in flames, as you might remember. And there weren't very many left, but I wanted one of each of the pawns so that they could work together. Um, so this is the reliquary. And if you're wondering, you know, why would I trust Matt Doe? is because um, he's been thanked and mentioned by Mac, Mike Tucker in a few different places, so you know that he at least knows Mike Tucker. Um, or if you have the Target storybook, Mike Tucker wrote a story in this, and the first sentence is, Private Matt Doe stared into the thick November fog, and so he put his friend in the book, and then kills him um, uh, violently, because that's what friends do. There's one other place that you can actually, that I know you can trust, and there's this uh, eBay site called Collectors Props Wales, which basically took all of the stuff that was discarded when the Doctor Who studio moved from, from Rothlock to the, to the new RTD location. And so they have, um, they have a whole bunch of pieces. Some of them are iconic, some of them aren't. But as you can see, the prices are like, oh wow, that's way too much money, which means that it's an actual prop. 
So like, uh, for example, here we've got, um, you can, for 200 pounds, you can get one of the emoji discs that was stuck onto people's backs from Smile. And next to it, uh, you can get one of the lights that was from the uh, Dalek spaceship in, in uh, Revolution of the Daleks, which I bought one of these because it turns out they reuse these and um, it's exactly what my favorite companion, Ace, blew up in the Centenary Special. She strapped her new Nitro 9 to a couple of these, so I just had to get one. So that is, that's a potted history of props. Um, and uh, the story is, fictional devices are magic. The BBC is very cheap. Scientists have made amazing things based on the sonic screwdriver anyway. And if you want to get Doctor Who props, don't get ripped off. <laughs> thank, thank you, to my guest, Brian Wiega here, uh, the Doctor Who Collectors Podcast main story for props and the history of the sonic screwdriver. So I thank you for being here. And uh, we're live at Chicago TARDIS, so thank you all for being here. And um, I know Brian will be around if you have specific one-on-one -on -one questions uh, that you yeah, want to Yeah, I'm happy. You can see, like, I could talk about this stuff for hours, and I hope it wasn't too dry, but it was the stuff that I, I, I find really interesting. I, I found it riveting, actually. Yeah. It's very, um, um, and I'll be around. I'll always have the Screen Use Sonic on me, so if you see me, um, feel free to just ask nicely for a selfie. Um, wash your hands first, please. <laughs> we have hand sanitizer. And, and it'll all be good. <laughs> now, does anybody have any questions about sonic screwdrivers or Doctor Who props? We've got a couple minutes before a panel comes yeah. in that you really should hang out for because we had an amazing queer panel about gender in Doctor Who in here before. And then we're going to have an amazing panel afterwards, a roundtable uh, discussion about LGBT uh, representation in Doctor Who and how much it means to so many people and uh, the producer of the documentary uh, that uh, I'm in where um, the story of why I was inspired by the sonic screwdriver to do all this stuff with film restoration um, is one of the one of the uh, one of the stories in this show called indoctrinated which we're having a preview tomorrow at three. Three o'clock in the Three main in, in the main ballroom. So much fun, and you can hear him talk even more than you have today. Yeah, but but not <laughs> as dry. They edited me. Um, and so I talk about how amazing it is to have these fictional devices that inspire everything I do technically and how, how amazing it is. And, um, and then we have a scientist, Sarah Roberts, who's talking about how the companions in Doctor Who, these amazing scientists that went on these amazing adventures, could, um, how much good they could do. And now she's a climate scientist. Um, finding safe groundwater in the in the desert, you know, Lawrence of Arabia, uh, Mad Max, finding finding the survival of the human race, which makes me feel a little small in comparison. And then uh, we have uh, Lee Hurtado, who uh, who has sadly passed away, but Doctor Who was a very large part of the comfort that he had at the end of his life. And then he also showed uh, took Doctor Who uh, and his passion about Doctor Who and and was instrumental in a theme park that is fully wheelchair accessible so wheelchair kids could get on every single ride and I just think that's the the coolest thing ever so I've got 
I've got uh, a time for maybe two deep dive nerd questions if anybody wants to know any more about Sonics. Yes? Do you know if anyone has made a replica of the Sonic Troll group song? Yes. Okay, I actually was commissioned to make one once, and apparently when it was shown to Alex Kingston, she did not want to give it back to the person I made it for because I integrated sound and lights into it. Oh, yes. From when you build your own Sonics. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She she's never seen one other than the prop that was used. Yeah, yeah. No, that's that's super cool. Um, yeah, there was only one Sonic trial. You know, the BBC, super high-budget show. <laughs> they have this new amazing thing that they're probably going to make a billion toys out of, the Sonic trial, and they made one. They had this amazing new prop that was a Sonic cane, and they made one. They had this, this amazing new laser screwdriver, and they made thousands and thousands of toys, and they had one. So that's, that's the story of the BBC in a nutshell. Any, anybody else before I, um, I quiet myself? So yes, you will get ripped off on eBay. Many, many years ago, I bought a, what I think said a screen used cider head. There are so many um, fake yeah. eBay uh, sales out there. I mean, if, if you want to learn all about that, go back about five or six episodes of the Doctor Who Collectors podcast, yeah. and I unveil the fraud, the ripoff artists, and the price gougers. And uh, some people are nodding their heads because they've heard the episode. Well, that's so, from, that was from L.I. Who, right? That was that panel? Um, there, was one, there was a panel at L.I. Who, but uh, I did a special episode yeah. on, on fraudsters out there. So it was quite a, you know, it's, it's unfortunate. Yeah. But. And, and don't, don't feel bad if you're duped. You just, because, you know, Ross was telling me a story about how um, they're trying to create a, uh, remember the Alamo Museum. Uh, in the actual town of the Alamo. And uh, the musician Phil Collins is one of the biggest Alamo collectors in, in, the, in, in existence. And he, um, he has this huge collection that's gonna be part of this museum. And people have been selling him a lot of bum stuff. So when they started putting together the exhibit, they're like, oh, th these aren't real. <laughs> Anyway, thank you all so much. Please hang out for the uh, LGBT representation panel. It's going to be a fun time. There's, it's going to be very emotional. It's very important to very many people. And I hope you learned a little something about flashlights that buzz and BBC cheapness. Thank you. Thank you. You were invited on an adventure across all of time and space in a completely random order. It's the Police Box in the Junkyard podcast. Jump in the TARDIS with your hosts. Eric Goldbranson. Asad Cheshki. And Matthew Kressel. Explore Doctor Who TV stories, audio adventures, and books, both novels and non-fiction. The Police Box in the Junkyard podcast. It's the entire Who-niverse. On Shuffle. The Police Box in the Junkyard podcast is a member of the Direction Point Network and is available about once a month wherever you find your podcasts. You are listening to the Doctor Who Collectors podcast. Keep collecting. All my travelings throughout the universe, I have battled against evil, against power-mad conspirators. I should have stayed here. The oldest civilization, decadent, degenerate, and rotten to the core. Power-mad conspirators, Daleks, Sontarans, Cybermen. They're still in the nursery compared to us. Ten million years of absolute power. That's what it takes to be really corrupt.
And now it's time for the most outrageous offer. This is a, a very popular part of our program where we talk about, or I talk about basically a Doctor Who item or Doctor Who related item that appears to be priced way out of the range of where it should be uh, compared to where else you can get it for. And so we like to point this out to people, not only to educate collectors on what to look for when you're buying things and how to avoid spending more money than you have to, but also to inform sellers that you shouldn't be placing these prices as high as you do. Um, the market just doesn't demand it, and especially if no one is buying it. So today, uh, I want to talk about a seller here. This is an eBay sale, um, and this is the seller's name is A-U-D-B-U-R-N, or Audburn. With 1,298 score there, 100% positive feedback, so no issues there. Um, this is uh, from the UK. And the item in question is the Doctor Who Evil of the Daleks Limited 4 Vinyl uh, Scarrow Swirl LP box set. I have two of these in my collection. Uh, and um, there looks, it looks like shipping is $80.76 uh, to the United States, or £68.83. Um, so that's, uh, that's that. So they're asking for a buy it now price of 920 pounds, 27, approximately $1,079 and 75 cents in American dollars. So, um, I'm just going to point out that this seems a bit outrageous to me, considering it is most likely a little under 10 times the actual value or price for this particular um, vinyl album. Uh, I do remember buying this new from Amazon, and I have one that's still in the manufacturer's packaging and one that's open. So I wanted to let you know that you can still get this uh, product here. We did some research here and found on uh, Amazon.com, uh, so Amazon US and UK, Doctor Who, uh, the... Uh, you know the the same the same product here. This is uh, um, Evil of the Daleks uh, BBC TV soundtrack uh, deluxe edition uh, color vinyl box set. Same exact thing. And the by the way the price here. Uh, let's see shipping uh, doesn't have a shipping price on here for say, but the price new is one hundred sixteen dollars and ninety six cents which is about what it's about worth. I would agree with that. Uh, ships within three to four days on Amazon. This is Amazon.com. So it's sold from a shop in the UK. <clears throat> so, and it includes free shipping. Oh, free shipping. Yeah, there you go. Free shipping. So $116.96 for free shipping. So there you go. Um, and and by the way, just, just so you know, you can also get the Daleks Master Plan original vinyl for $125 on Amazon. So there's no reason to to pay a thousand dollars for this uh, for this set. Um, just not worth it. And you know, do your research. We always say, you know, you know, it's always let the buyer beware, but make sure that you're thoroughly investigating what you're looking for. If you're looking to collect this particular item or you want to listen to it, it's a, it's a wonderful uh, thing to listen to as well. Warm vinyl sound. I think it's amazing. Um, don't spend too much money for it. 
you know, look to see if you can still get it new. A lot of times, nine times out of ten, uh, these vinyl records that have come out in the last few years are still in stock in some places. Uh, I would check Amazon. I would check Alien Entertainment. I would check Who North America or the Who Shop UK. Those are my three go-to places before I go to the auction sites. And, of course, even just searching eBay, I found it for a lot less, although the lowest prices on Amazon new. So I would go there and buy it new. Uh, so there you go. That's uh, that's the outrageous offer. The links will be on our website. I don't know if the sale will still be there. Uh, a lot of times after we pr- we do this, uh, people start bothering the seller, and the seller either takes the auction down or lowers the price. But I do have a printout and a screenshot of the actual um, uh, auction in case you doubt my words. Uh, so there you go. Uh, that concludes our most outrageous offer. If you see a, uh, an item, a Doctor Who item, Doctor Who related item, or uh, you know something related to the show, and you think the price is just a little crazy, and I mean really crazy, uh, some items are more money. If you're talking about a prop, you might be spending a little bit more, or a one-of-a-kind item. Uh, that might be a little bit more money and hard to pinpoint another source. But if you think you can still get it cheaper, we'll do the research for you. No problem. If you want to be mentioned on the air, we'll do that too. Uh, the person that sent this here asked to be anonymous, so we're going to respect that. And uh, that's, you know, we get, we get, uh, I get a lot of these. And so I'll, I'll probably be stacking a few of these in future episodes, doing a few of them, just to kind of keep the education going. Uh, but anyway, that's, that's what we do here. We try to entertain and educate at the same time. But that's the most outrageous offer, and that wraps up the Doctor Who Collectors Podcast for episode 57. I want to thank uh, my guest, Brian Wiga. I really enjoyed uh, having a one-on-one talk with him and recording his session at Chicago TARDIS. Um, I also want to thank uh, everybody who uh, uh, said hello to me at Chicago TARDIS and the people that have uh, extended their well wishes on, uh, on various social media platforms or through email. So we thank you for that. Uh, what's coming up on the on the podcast? The next episode will be our Christmas episode, uh, sponsored by Amazon.com. It's the only episode ever sponsored by Amazon. It's the gift uh, guide to Doctor Who items for the casual fan. And again, for the casual fan, if you're buying for a collector, and I'll say this again in the next episode, ask them first. So thank you so much for listening. And until then, keep collecting. Doctor Who Podcast Network.